Is anyone else still in this call that can hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. Oh, that's all right then. Lee, are you still there? Any better? No. Not really. <laughs> I think the volume you're at, at the minute, Lee, would count as a mental illness. <laughs> right, hang on. I'm going to turn the video off. Oh. Let me. <coughs> It's a bit like... Um, okay, very good. It's a bit like confession in the Catholic Church, isn't it? You can't see him. <laughs> this is just Tell me your reasons, my child. Of course, the, the thing you say is not, forgive me, Father, I have sinned, it's punish me, Daddy, I've been bad. They don't like <laughs> it when you do that. What in session? Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the corner of Doctor Who fandom that tonight puts on trial an episode featuring John Barrowman, not for the first time in his life, enjoying being shackled to Big Ben, it's the Polis Box, the podcast that puts Doctor Who in the dock. I'm Lee. I'm Dave, and next to me, shaking his head and holding it in his hands is... I'm Cameron, doing my... oh Jesus, quite early this episode it would seem. Shaking his head and holding it in his hands, dirty boy. Oh, for God's sake, Slick. Come on. <laughs> it's almost like when there's no video, he gets just out of control. He does, yeah, because we're not there to just, like, glare at him. <laughs> Let's not pretend this is a highbrow podcast. Come on. No one ever did. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, this time round, we're going to be putting the empty child and the Dr. Dancy's on trial. But before we do that, shall we get into what happened last time? Uh, we shall. That's, that's how we usually do it. Yeah, that's how we usually do it. Yeah, <laughs> we put the hungry earth and cold blood from Matt Smith's first series as a doctor on trial. Uh, Cameron, you were prosecuting it. I was, yes. So, Dave, by process of elimination, you were defending it. That seems to make sense. Shall we find the results for the poll then? Only if your audio holds up, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But we, we, we probably should open, throw some daylight in upon magic just now. We're having all sorts of technical problems tonight with pictures breaking up and sound breaking up. So I've had to switch my camera off, which has unsettled Dave and Cameron somewhat. Hey, it disembodied is, voices. Because like, we're, we're like, 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 he's the only face on my screen now. As I say, yeah. it just feels really <laughs> confrontational. I'm reminded about, you know, you remember on the Fast Show they had like the World Steering Championships? <laughs> it feels like that. <laughs> Whatever you do, Cameron, don't blink. No. <laughs> no blink okay. if you'll wake up in 1920s New York, which makes no sense. <laughs> Unless I'm defending it, which case is a great device. <laughs> These are the results from last episode's poll. So the Hungry Earth and Cold Blood, guilty, 62%. Yeah. Not guilty, 38%. So Cameron, you've taken that one. You get to choose whether you prosecute or defend the episode we draw in the Envelopes of Justice at the end of tonight's programme. Okay, fair enough. How does it feel? That's come, like, really 
I, when I checked that feed like, even yesterday, not guilty was in the lead. I've been keeping an eye on it for the last few days. It's been another one of these ones that have bounced around quite a lot. So we initially right. put up the poll, not guilty raced into a massive lead. And it slowly sort of chipped and evened up again. It was 50-50 a couple of days ago. Yeah, because I looked yeah. at it a couple of days ago. Yeah, and it's back up to guilty. And I think not guilty took over again. And then over the last few hours of today, until the poll closed about an hour and a half ago, guilty took it. A late search, uh-huh. re- late rally. Those sock puppet accounts are paying off dividends. <laughs> <laughs> so basically that means that uh, the Hungry Earth and Cold Blood has been cast out into the wilderness. It does not deserve a place in our ultimate Doctor Who canon, I'm afraid. Dead I'm actually quite yeah. surprised at that. So am I, actually, because it's not really an episode that had any major flaw in it. I think Matt Smith's been in plenty worse. It's almost as if people look poorly on Chris Chibnall's episodes. Can't think what might have caused that. But I've no, I've no idea, no idea. Uh, I, was just quite proud because... of it. I was just quite proud of this was the green death you bought it on Mish. I think that was Matt with my guest all the resistance last time round. <laughs> Okay, let's stick a pin in that straight away. It's time to go back to the very beginning, the very first series of Doctor Who 2.0. It's time to put the empty child and the Doctor dances on trial. So, um, who are you supposed to be then? Captain Jack Harkness, 133 Squadron, Royal Air Force, American Volunteer. What happens if he touches me? He'll make you like him. And what's he like? I've got to go. Nancy, what's he like? He's empty. And that bomb dropped, there was just one victim. Dead. At first. His injuries were truly dreadful. By the following morning, every doctor and nurse who had treated him, who had touched him, those exact same injuries by the morning after that every patient in the same ward the exact same injuries within a week the entire hospital physical injuries as plague just this once everybody lives The Empty Child and the Doctor Dances was written by Stephen Moffat, directed by James Hawes and produced by Phil Collinson. It starred Christopher Eccleston as the Doctor, Billy Piper as Rose and John Barrowman as Captain Jack Harkness, with Florence Hoff as Nancy, Richard Wilson as Doctor Constantine, Robert Hans as Algy and Albert Valentine as the Child. It was broadcast on Saturday the 21st of May and Saturday the 28th of May 2005. And the viewing figures were 7.1 million for The Empty Child and 6.8 million for The Doctor Dances. Cameron, you're going to be defending. I mean, Dave. Dave, you'll be trying to stick the boot into this one. That, that seems like you've almost made your mind up already there, Your Honour. I'll be trying to stick the boot in? What, what kind of prejudgment well, is that? Well, shall we, shall we go somebody explaining my uh, comments? Shall we go to listener evidence? Let's, let's, let's see how wrong they are. This is the law! 
Well, we've got an absolute ton of listener evidence this time round. I noticed there was a lot floating about. Loads. Mm. By our standards. Well, yeah, by our standards. You know, Here's not two quite, pieces of evidence. It's not quite time-lash levels, but you know. Let's get into it. And when Deborah has been in touch, she says, The empty child freaked me out when it aired. Later that week, I was scared by someone wearing a gas mask in a Tesco car park at the dead of night. Dave, we've told you about this. Now, as I say, wearing a gas mask and nothing else. Because otherwise you can't prove it was me. Can't be him. <laughs> she doesn't say where the gas mask was. Uh, she, then goes on... <laughs> she then goes on to say, so it wasn't until four years afterwards that I saw the Doctor dances and liked it quite a bit. That guy is guilty. This story is not. Oh, wow. Jeff Waddle's also been in touch. He says the first time since the show came back, it was genuinely creepy. Uh, the first time that I said to myself, in brackets, not the missus, obviously, I shag Rose. And that's how shallow I am. So it's a not guilty from me, Moffat at his best. Ooh, such high praise, Moffat at his best. I think there's going to be a bit of Moffat digging coming in the, the prosecution tonight. Uh, by the uh, you get the feeling that that's on the cards, don't you? Rassalon's trousers has been in touch. He says, not much you can say really about this other than it's pretty much flawless. For me, this was the moment where it really hit him that the new era wasn't going to be just okay. It was going to be something very special indeed. I would imagine then that Rathlon's trousers was a bit unconvinced by the Unquiet Dead. Yeah, we get that impression, yeah. Yeah, never mind. Okay. Anyway, we can go to that later on. For another time. Uh, Millie McKenzie. Oh, aye. <laughs> oh, aye. <laughs> Millie's been in touch. I could go on and on for hours about how much I love this story, but all I'm going to say is, Dave... Good luck, mate. Thanks, Millie. And we've got to appreciate the fact, by the way, that Millie's firing Adric into the sun. Sorry, yes. posting him. Doing the Lord's work. <laughs> Throwing him up yes. to all building. She's also made an Ewok. And that looks very good. That was on her Twitter earlier. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was on her Twitter feed earlier. She's done an Ewok. Yeah. I haven't seen the Ewok. I'll have to check out the Ewok later. I'm hoping she does Chewbacca as well. Well, obviously, if you know who Millie is, then you already follow her on Twitter and think all her stuff's awesome, and you're probably going to buy some of her stuff in Redbubble. <laughs> nice plug, Dave. But it's I'm after, true. A I'm after a Naimon mug. See? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? I was going to say, like, you haven't already decided what you're buying, Lee. Or already <laughs> placed an order. Fraser Gregory has also been in touch. He says, a cliffhanger. It's resolution. The scene at the dinner table. The Santa quip. Just this once. Everybody lives. There's no way an episode containing those can be guilty. One of Moffat's finest. Okay. Ah, uh, Dave, j- just just for you, man. Just for you. You've got somebody who's on your side. It's not quite the avalanche of not guilty you're expecting. Derek Williams. Cameron's mate has been in touch to say, while at the time it seemed, ooh, that's quite spooky. Ooh, this Moffat chap is quite clever. It brought hyperactive Roger anything with a pulse Captain Jack into the series and is therefore guilty. This is also made worse by the fact that Moffat being able to write a good story made this overhopeful for him running the show. This new position clearly got him drunk on power, making him think of utter bollocks like dinosaurs on a spaceship. So clearly guilty. I ask a lot of guilty by association with other things. <laughs> That's a touch, isn't it? Yeah. Well, like stories that he's written, other things he's done. Yeah, Captain but it's just kind of like one. It's kind of essentially saying, "Oh, well, this must be guilty because he wrote this other episode four years afterwards or whatever." But he did open by saying, "This has got Captain Jack in it, therefore it's guilty." This so his opening wrong. point was about this. No, no, wait. Can you say it again? So we've got a clean version of it on the recording camera. What you're about to say, say it loud and say it proud. 
share it with the class. <laughs> no. <laughs> so there you go. That's listening to everything. Shall we get into it then? Okay, right. We have to probably start off by talking about Eccleston's performance as the Doctor in this, because obviously, you know, it's a sad state of affairs that Eccleston only ever did one season. But I've got down here this... He had to strike a very delicate balancing act throughout this entire run, in that he has to still maintain the legacy of one of the most iconic parts in British television, yet keep it relatively on a level that newcomers can easily access it. And I think the key part of this in the first part of this story is that he allows the Doctor to be not so much a bumbling idiot, but to make a crucial mistake with the whole, has anyone seen something fall from the sky lately? You know, it's. I don't really think it's. It's a great performance, but I don't think you know. We often play the thing about you know putting other doctors into stories, and I don't think any other doctor could have done that with the the ability that Christopher Eccleston does. It's the willingness to show the doctor being a bit of a fool, but getting away with it. So the basic point I'm trying to make is that Eccleston's performance as the Doctor, makes a lot of this story. Yeah, and I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. Eccleston is a great actor. And as you said, he only did one season. Probably because of the way the show was run, he only did one season. Because of stories like this, he might have considered staying. But yeah, he's a great Doctor. But I, I don't think the Doctor being an idiot, in this case, is a great thing. He, he doesn't know when he's arrived. He doesn't know when it is. But later on in the story, he actually goes, I make it to be about 1941. How has he made that happen? How does he suddenly know when it is? He knows it's the Blitz. Well, yeah, I mean, he can pinpoint it from that. Now he's got a little bit more information. But, I mean, if you would imagine that... Should we say if it was... He actually looks at his wrist and goes, I make it 1941. So if he's got something that tells him when it is, wouldn't he have looked at that in the walk between the TARDIS and the speakeasy club or whatever it is he goes into? Not so much, because I think apparently he was maybe just trying to see if he could get his bearings himself. I mean, there's a whole argument that him and Rose are having during that time in the episode where she's essentially trying to encourage him to just take the shortcuts, you know, scan for alien tech and all that kind of stuff, like she's seen in them science. Oh. Oh. Yeah, you disappeared for a good 15 seconds there. Did I? What did you get up to? Uh, Rose and <laughs> Doctor in the alley. <laughs> Not like that. <laughs> yeah, you were talking um, about the argument they were having. I mean, when they were first getting off the TARDIS, Rose is essentially trying to encourage him to take like a shortcut, you know, scan for alien tech and all that kind of stuff. That's the exact line she uses. And I think he's trying to prove a point that he doesn't really... He wants to work out himself and not use any kind of like gadgetry or anything like that and not like show off too much... He might even well know, but he's, for the purposes of introdu- you know, the introduction for the audience to this, he's trying to work out bit by bit. And I think if it was, for example, say, a Colin Baker in this story, he would probably just be storming off down the street, slapping the nearest person over the head, and then accusing them of being a German spy or something like that. Whereas it's 
Yeah, you know, yeah, you you know that would be the case, wouldn't you? You know that'd be the case, and then that person would probably die three seconds in because it's Eric Sayward. <laughs> but it's he he plays it with. I think you could say the scene with you know, has anything dropped from the sky lately? Is kind of like set up as just a gag of a joke, but it it, it would be very very easy to just have the Doctor as this all knowledgeable being, as he sometimes is at the minute, but. It, it it allows the audience a little bit of time to settle in with him not really being sure of what exactly is going on initially. And I think there is a few problems with that because as you said, any previous incarnation of the Doctor would have done it differently. But any previous incarnation of the Doctor wouldn't necessarily have done this script. And they wouldn't have done it the same way because they didn't have the sonic screwdriver the same way. They didn't have all the rules that they started putting in place with these episodes. Uh, the scene you talk about where they get out the TARDIS and she says, can you just scan for alien technology? And he says, no, nah, I just want to walk around to see what's going on. And he's comedy stylings. And then he walks down the hill and he opens a wooden door with his sonic screwdriver. That, that, that's literally like the third scene in this episode. He opens a wooden door with his sonic screwdriver before they say later on that he doesn't do wood. And I think if they'd been more in the flow of making episodes, that wouldn't have happened. Because you're right, he says he doesn't want to use, he wants to just do it the normal, natural way. And then he goes off and uses his technology on a wooden door, which he later says he can't do. There was lots of little bits in this episode that caught me like that. Where the fuck did he get a banana in 1941 London? I think there were probably people you could talk to to get a banana in 1941 London. If you sure yeah, but, you so choose. But they weren't hanging around locked up hospitals. Like, yeah, it's a great gag and it's a really nice thing, but it doesn't make sense. Even like a cursory glance, that doesn't make sense. Knowing Captain Jack as we do now, he would have noticed somebody putting their hand in his pocket. <laughs> it's probably not the best move in the part of the doctor slipping a banana in Captain Jack's coat pocket. He's going to take that as a sign. Yeah. Oh, yeah, probably is somewhere. Can't possibly surmise. <laughs> Where were we? Uh... <laughs> yeah, you were talking about the fact that this was a story that Eccleston does really well for. And I think it's well, yeah. It's not just the fact that different doctors would have done different, but I think there's a very, uh, as I was saying, there's, there's a balance to strike between keeping it accessible to newcomers of the series, which I would wager by the fact that we're still watching Doctor Who on BBC Television 16 years later, he probably did quite well, and also keeping up a legacy of a character that was, you know, on telly for 30 years beforehand. There's a lot of weight to carry in that role and I think you know Eccleston's performance in this as well is very much a symbol of that uh, and that he does quite well in that so you know other actors maybe you know would have fallen flat on their arse with that amount of pressure but Eccleston carries it really really well yeah he does he's a, he's a good doctor he's a good actor I think there's a lot of bits of this story that show that they're early on and they're not quite sure what they're doing yet there's some things that are callbacks to earlier doctors and there's some bits that they're trying to make it new because they've got more words to use, so they're trying to squeeze them in. It, it, it kind of surprised me watching this, how there is that kind of like, they're still doing little bits to kind of like try and establish the world and the lore with it. Yeah. It's not really straight on, and we're so used now to basically going, oh yeah, the TARDIS is that, this does that, some screwdrivers do that, and they can't do that, and this, that, and the next thing. Um, whereas, you know, you forget that this was like 2005, and this would have been like, you know, many people's first second third yeah. story of doctor who ever so there has to be that kind of framework laid out for them and there's a couple of moments that you're like kind of it feels like 
it's kind of almost baby steps, which you forget that that's what they had to do. But I'd completely forgotten about it totally. But it was a surprise to see come back up again, you know, doing this one. And there seems to be things that they keep trying to do something with, but they're not sure how we use it. They just remind people they exist, like time agents. Ah, you used to be a time agent, but then you left and now you're trying to sell them. All right, are we ever going to get any time agent stories? Is that the plan for a spin-off? Well, big finish, we're writing notes, probably. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Time agents, you say? Alright. But it's the kind of thing that always gets mentioned when Captain Jack turns up, is the time agents. But it never really gets fleshed out. Context of this, I don't think that would be entirely necessary to go into that much Hmm. detail with him. All you need to know is that he wants to sell this ambulance medical pod. It's one of those things that they've thrown in because they might use it later. Yeah, and it is just trying to get callbacks which is fair enough but I don't think they need to have as many in there it does occasionally feel like they're just throwing enough stuff at the wall to make sure some of it sticks because it was similar with the nanogenes it's a great storytelling device but it also sounds very sci-fi tropey they're nanogenes, they'll fix everything they're they're very small therefore they're nano and they change how people are so they're nanogenes for what they'll do I think the nanogenes will work because whilst they are a bit of science fiction trope, or they'll fiction repair you, it's not an over-laboured point, because the nanogenes are really only mentioned in the first episode in like a 30-second long stretch where they repair Rose's hands from the rope burns. Yep. Not the carpet, not the carpet burns. The rope burns. Again, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. you have to wait to see this too for that. Yeah, exactly. Aye. So, um, it's they don't labour a point and for being something that pretty much is the resolution of the entire story it's it could have been overdone even at that point but it's not and it is kind of like it does give you twofold it gives you the reason why these monsters in inverted commas exist and it also gives you a driving reason as to what it actually is that Jack's trying to flog so whilst well, they are a trope, yes, they're there for two reasons, both of which hold up. Jack is trying to flog what he knows is an empty bean tin. Yeah, but he just thinks it's more... He, does he thought it was empty. Enough, but he's, bank, he's banking on someone else not thinking it's empty. So, so here's a question. It's 1941, the middle of the Blitz. Hundreds of people are dying every day. There's these nanogenes that can repair everyone on the planet mm-hmm. and literally make the world a much better place. So what the doctor does is he programs them to just disappear when they fix those 20 people. Why? Why, why wouldn't he do the right thing and protect as many people as possible? And it's solve, a very callous manoeuvre. And solve World War Two is what you're saying. I think there's a point of maybe messing with established sequence of events there. Yeah, I think there's a fixed point in time thing going on here, surely. Yes, but he, yeah. he never explains that. Like, nobody ever challenged them on egg. So you could have saved everyone, but you didn't. Why not, Doctor? Because the human race has to learn. Would have been a very Eccleston's Doctor kind of way to say it. Instead, there's no explanation given, so you're just left wondering, well, why didn't he fix everyone? Because he does say, nobody dies today. Well, I don't think that's true, actually. 1941, Middle of the Bliss. Nobody dies within 50 feet of me for the next 10 minutes. That's what you should have said. <laughs> that would have been quite as a catchy little side of flight. No. Not really. Nobody dies today that I could see, but maybe don't buy Christmas presents. This shit's going on for a while. 
Okay, Dave, do you want to give us another point for the prosecution? Because I get a feeling that was one of your points for the prosecution. <laughs> well, that was several of my points for the prosecution. Okay, well, do you want to give us another? Yeah, as, as part of the reader evidence, well, the listener evidence, this is the introduction of Captain Jack. And it goes to show what they kept trying to come back to every time they kept bringing Captain Jack in. Because Captain Jack is alright in this, but the chemistry between the three of them is quite good. And I think that every time they bring back John Barman, they're trying to get that chemistry back. Every time he's in an episode, it's like somebody phoning their ex when they're pissed, saying, why couldn't we make it work? (laughs) (laughs) And And I think this is the reason that Torchwood happens, which is the reason that Class happens. And all the spin-offs are because of the chemistry between these three and this, uh, this story. And for that, I think that brings problems to the entire franchise after this show. Like, after these go out, they go, that's what we want. But it's actually not what we everyone wants. It kind of ties in, is it really, to my fourth point on my list here, which I'll probably just launch into that straight now. Because it's kind of a response to what you've just said. I said, I personally had forgotten that Jack doesn't start out as the chiseled jawed war hero he later becomes as part of Torchwood. Uh, Not only is he a cad and a scoundrel who's only interested in money, but he's also the doctor with the testosterone pumped up. Time machine, check. Sonic gun, check. And able to scan for alien tech, all important things. The playoff between the doctor and Jack is a joy to watch in this episode. I wasn't even really counting Rose in that equation but obviously you probably would um i was more you know he he is through this story possibly the doctor that rose kind of envisaged she was going to have when she first set foot on the tardis this kind of all action hero this kind of like you know dazzling all action hero with how big juggy is and all that kind of stuff you know Bless who shouts out for being sad about things? And, yes, know. exactly. You know, you know that kind of that kind of jazz. Poor Captain America, less Gary Lineker. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, it, it, there's your episode title. Uh, <laughs> it's almost like you're blaming the character of Captain Jack for the sort of like spin-offs of Doctor Who that came later. Yes. Well, Which, Torchwood, okay. for example. Well, yeah, Torchwood. We can debate about Torchwood at any other time, but obviously. That I would probably, if I was to give my quick summary of my opinion of Torchwood, I would say first two seasons good, last two seasons not. <laughs> Which is right. probably the genuine yeah. consensus. I'd be more tempted to go the other way around with that. Yeah? Yeah, but the first two seasons are pretty bad achievement. It started going into five episodes a night, things like, you know, Children of Earth and whatever the other one was. They were, yeah, I'd say they. I think well, your point is kind of undermined by, by the use of the words whatever the other one was. <laughs> in that. Well, <laughs> my short-term memory should be no judgment on the quality of talk. Yeah, it's... that one that was really, really good. What was it? I don't know. <laughs> you know that you one. Know, you know that one with Captain Jack and the thing me, whatever, the bad guys in it. Captain <laughs> Jack and the bad guys, he's got a bazooka. Not the Capaldi one, the other one. Yeah. The other one, where the aliens are called the 456. That is cool, that's... Say, that was it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the 456 are the children of Earth. Children of Earth ones. Oh, yeah. yeah. That shows how much I've got for that one. Anyway, Captain Jack is to blame for essentially, all the spin-offs. Essentially, you're laying the blame of all the spin-offs, which I'll say have 
reduced in number, certainly, over the last few years, at least. Almost like nobody watches them. Yes. I would argue they've learned a lesson and they're not doing them anymore, to the degree they were. He is... Obviously, he's necessary in this because he is a foil for the Doctor to compare himself to. And it's kind of a comic relief to watch them play off against each other in this kind of, like, masculine competition that the Doctor's maybe unprepared for. But no, I'd still say that most of your Doctor Who fandom will look back and have a fondness for Captain Jack as a character. You don't get much Captain Jack hate in the general Who fandom. I think that I've ever come across anyway. I think that if they reshowed this episode, there might be a lot of people with problems with it. Because literally the first time he sees a woman in danger and distress, he looks at her arse through her binoculars. That's it. He literally reduces her to a physical body and that's it. I think because, and I'm not, I say I'm excusing a fictional character's behaviour here, but he comes across as essentially just as, you know, Captain Jack, as we know him as, an extremely horny fella rather than some sort of like slavering sexual predator. I think of Captain Jack in my head as almost carry on style. Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. This kind of chuckle is kind of, you know, it would be like the, the you know, the whistle whoop, kind of thing, you know, yes. rather than any kind of like. Well, occasionally it borders on Benny Hill and it gets into the slightly more dodgy. Well, territory. yeah, but I, th- I think the, the, the dividing line would probably be if the scene was replayed and he had his binoculars and he went, great tits, then yes, we're going to be in trouble. But So she should have been facing the other way and a different actress. Oh. oh dear, right. Personal slights against the actors. Let's get back to the point in hand, Mr. Cummings. <laughs> I was slagging off the character. <laughs> and by extension, the actress. Yes. But yeah, he, he's he's, respons- he's not necessarily responsible for a lot of stuff. But I think bringing him back repeatedly to try and regain this is responsible for a lot of stuff. Because I think whenever there's probably been times when they're thinking of who to bring in as the exposition character, and John Barman's sitting outside the office with his begging bowl saying, please give me a script, and that's what they do, because he's there and it's easy. It kind of begs the obvious question, I'm trying to remember now when Captain Jack's actually come back. Obviously he comes back for the finale of this season, and Uh, is killed in inverted commas. Yeah, Series 3 comes back for the last three episodes again. Yeah, because he's in Utopia and Sound of Drums, isn't he? Uh, yep, Utopia, Sound of Drums, last of the Time Lords he's in. Is he and in the end of the season four? As well? I seem to remember him trying to get the Oster Hagen key when Davros right, yeah. was doing yeah, his reality that, bomb. He's at the end of series four as well. And and then that'll I think be... there's a big gap until he comes back last Christmas, I think. Well, yeah, because I was going to say, because he's, like, he's obviously a Russell T. Davis creation. And... You know, obviously, he maybe got left on the back burner when Stephen Moffat took over as the showrunner. And has only, as we say, recently come back, not in a big way, for, you know, to bust Jodie Whittaker out of jail. So, you know, when he came back, you know, at the end of that season, again, I think people were kind of were warmly welcome to him. I don't think he's a hated and detested character. You can pin all the blame for the spin-offs all you want. I don't, I don't think, think he's hated and detested. I think he's a lazy character to use. 
there's no need to introduce somebody new to break the door. Trouble, he's Captain Jack. Is it not though that he's probably one of the first original creations of the new series of New Who? He's like one of the original first original characters. That doesn't mean they have to bring him back every season. I know, but I'm just, I'm just saying it, it would be. You know, there's almost a pride in the fact that they've managed to get this character who is just look at what we made. Yeah, as everyone proud. I don't see. I don't see pride in a kind of jokey sense, by the way, considering obviously John Barman. Um, but there's also something I have written down my notes here as well. There's something quite brave in a 2005 BBC Saturday Tea Time television show. To portray an openly bisexual character, um, there both is and there isn't because there's been homosexuals on television for years. Whether they were open about it or just really fucking obvious, it's it's well, not relatively talking, brave. I'm not talking even like we're getting back again to like Carry On Camp. There's not, and I'm here so I'm gonna I'm gonna say the words John Barrowman's not Carry On Camp, but I'm trying to make that make sense. <laughs> you know what I mean? But for the character of Jack, it's not as if he's, you know, it's not introduced in a kind of like, you, you know, overly, and again, it's John Barrowman, and I'm trying to say it's not done in an overly done, I'm thinking more of the character of Jack rather than John Barrowman, the actor. But not the first time you've said that. Well, it's how I, you know, how do I get to sleep at night? I just think it's, I can't think of any character beforehand, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure people will, that was, you know, it's almost not like his bisexuality is sort of a defining part of a story or a defining part of his arc. He has to discover himself and all this kind of stuff. It's just there. It's just what he is. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, yeah, great. That's cool. And then the story carries on as it it was always going to. You know, no one gets hung up on it. He, he just is, and I think you're right in the, sort of the context of like Saturday Night Mainstream Entertainment. That's probably the first example of a character of that kind. Yeah. Now you say nobody gets hung up on it. Rose kind of does. Rose, who in many ways is there to represent the viewer, who's new to all of this, does get hung up on it. She gets a bit confused and a bit weirded out until the doctor points out that he's from the future. And he'll shag anything. He's not. I don't think he's even bisexual. I don't know what the phrase would be. It would be omnisexual. I was just about to say the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was just about to go. That would have been my guess as well. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he's not bisexual. He's something else. He's Captain Jack. I don't know when there was openly bisexual characters on British television. So you might be right that Captain Jack was the first. I mean, there may have been, but I I would wager that they were probably, you know, that was like the first thing on their character sheet. Yeah. And they had to really camp it up. Yeah, it's like an episode of Casualty or something like that. Yeah, it's like kind of going, they would be like, you know, wandering around, calling people, you know, ducky and all this kind of crap that went on. <laughs> and all this kind of, you know, it would be that would be like the shorthand for it. Whereas in this, it's it's kind of brave in the way that they almost kind of just... The shoulders are shrugged and... Yeah, Rose maybe does get a little bit hung up on it, but not to the degree where she's like constantly going, so yeah, you'll... Sh- you'll, you'll, you'll both of them, yeah? Just anyone, yeah? Uh, you know, it's not like a major flag that gets stamped down at the ground from that moment onwards about his character. It's just... It's 
that's it. It's who he is, and people just accept it. You say it's not a major flag about his character. It basically is his character. That that's what people but what think I'm of when they think other, of his character. Yeah, other people's reaction to it. Yeah, it's not like you know. There's this great offence caused, and you know, it's constantly kind of everyone else around him mentions it all the time. It doesn't mean that he's like not human. He's not that different, Cameron. Bisexuals are people too. <laughs> I knew we were going to <laughs> I could just see no, I could just see on the camera Dave was having a wee smile to himself and then off he is now. Look at him, look at him. The look at him. in his eye is he leads you down that garden path. Yes, exactly. You're right, it's not it's not a main part of his character, it's not a main part of his no. exposition in this. No. But it does become the centre of his character. If you ask almost anyone who watches Doctor Who, even to a low level if they've seen Captain Jack and what he does, you go, what's Captain Jack doing? And I want to go, whatever he can hold down. Like, well, yeah, and it's, it's like, when you get to Torchwood and you realise him and Yanto are having a casual one and all this kind of stuff, yeah. But not so much in this to begin with. No, because the character is very light about it because it just is, because he's from the future and he accepts it. And it's not BBC Three. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. Right. Well, yes. <laughs> Dave, wow. do you want to give us another point for the prosecution then? It, it's a weird one, this, right? So, Captain Jack is from the 51st century. He's a time agent or an ex-time agent. He's never heard of the Doctor or Gallifrey. He doesn't know what a TARDIS is. Come on now, he'd know. The legend of the Doctor is massive and spread throughout space. And we know that from the earlier Doctors. So, if they're doing a complete restart, then they've got time to go and build the Doctor's legend anew with this ex-time agent, but they don't bother. Space is a really, really big place. <laughs> you might think it's a long walk down to you from your house to the chemists, but that's peanuts in comparison to space. <laughs> yes, space, space is vast. Space is really, big. really big. It's not Almost the walk big. to the agent. Think of Almost the biggest thing you can think oh. of, but go bigger. The next time you're nipping down the shop for a packet of custard creams, think about that. Sorry, I've gone into Clipton, but just again. Have a bit, yeah. I'm I getting thinking about Alan Bennett. Planets and nonce. <laughs> Things can only get better. <laughs> Can only get better. Now I found you. <laughs> On a Tuesday down the bingo club. <laughs> uh, for the benefits of Millie, I'd like to apologise for the entries to the Millipedia we're going to have to do for this bit. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Never growing Millipedia. Is the Millipedia even up and running yet? <laughs> well, well, if you 40... made it, because I'm not. <laughs> we have 42 episodes full of this sort of stuff. It's taken yeah. a time. It's taken its time. Well, probably, yeah. I mean, I had I was thinking the other day about writing an uh, entry of who Fabrizio Ravanelli was. <laughs> ah, the white feather. Yes. And Dollar Bear Spins Pops. <laughs> but yeah, if um, there are any references in any episodes that people want to know what they relate to, just tweet at the Polis Box and we'll tell you. Yep. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> Well, you know, that's, that's what you get for running. That's the next four weeks taken up for me then, isn't it? Yeah. 
And for me, because I'll be making up fake Wikipedia pages for things you have to explain so they don't make sense. <laughs> Fabrizio Ravanelli was an Italian Prime Minister. <laughs> <laughs> and a flavour of ice cream. <laughs> he always addressed Parliament with his shirt pulled over his head. <laughs> anyway, space, legends of the Doctor. Yes, space is a very big place. There's more, you know, there's quite feasible that no one's ever heard of Gallifrey, nor even possibly heard of it, but didn't care. Because for all, for, for the Doctor Who sort of like universe lore, it does seem to be that the Time Lords were a little bit of just this race in the corner of a galaxy somewhere with, you know, they're so far up their own arse that everyone else just ignores them because they seem to think they're better than anyone else. So it'd be quite yeah. feasible. You'd just like, you'd maybe like, Oh, them. Eh, whatever. But they can travel all through time and space, and the Doctor does it a lot interfering with things. So it just seems strange that they've brought in this 51st century time agent who's human and therefore, you know, related to people of Earth, where the Doctor's a legend, and he's just never looked into any of this stuff. So it seems a bit bizarre to me. Probably too busy trying to sell warships to really give a monkeys. Fair enough. Or he's trying to sell monkeys to give a warship. <laughs> Don't, because Big Finish will do that. Monkeys on a warship. <laughs> <laughs> Featuring Captain Jack. <laughs> Gibbons on a cruise liner. Oh, you just know he'd call himself Silverback after that. <laughs> oh, no. And we won't ask why. Oh, no. Is it silver or is it off white? It's. Shall we get, it's off, shall we get it's a silver tone? That's what it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Let's get ourselves out of this old Cameron. Next point for the defence, please. There's part of the success of this story is that it manages to make one phrase scary. And that phrase is, are you my mummy? Which, rather brilliantly in the second part, is condensed simply down to the word mummy. And it's like, you know, you could have just had sort of like, you know, almost zombified kind of guttural grunting. But it's damn effective that they can make what on the surface of it seems a completely innocent question into something quite chilling. So you're crediting them with making the word mummy as frightening. I'd like to introduce you to a whole series of films some of which are famous people about mummies. Now it might not be the same kind of mummy but mummy was already a frightening word. Well A, not not the same kind of mummy as you've just said and B, I don't think anyone walks around Egypt asking bandaged people excuse me <laughs> are you my I went a bit George Galloway there imagine him walking on pyramids hello are you my mummy would you like me to be the bandaged remains of an ancestor <laughs> possibly uh, I think um, you'll find that actually the same kind of mummy has been terrifying in a film there's a film called Mummy Dearest which is about the actress Joan Crawford being an abusive and manipulative mother who was a really bad mummy. She's called Mommy Dearest. And that's such a famous film that I actually occasionally call my mother Mummy Dearest. <laughs> Just to wind her up. So the, the scary mummy thing has been done before. It's not original. Can I, um, can I, can I ask the judge if uh, yes. the prosecution is allowed to bring up such obscure not really even be possibly even see movies that uh, he has seen in in evidence that i don't think anyone else has really ever heard of the prosecution is allowed to shore up his entirely shaky stand on this episode <laughs> by bringing whatever he likes 
but it might not be considered. I would advise both sides of the courtroom to keep to the episode in hand. Now, you see, there's two films. There's Mummy Dearest and there's Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, which are about the same thing. But that's fine. You know, Oscar-winning films, that's fine. You can call them B-movies if you want, just because they're not about wrestling. Now, you say that it's a great catchphrase. I think it might be one of the most annoying catchphrases of New Who. It comes back and they've got a few catchphrases, not many. Don't blink, that's one of them. But, are you my mummy? It, it's just... It became a thing to say for a while and it was really, really annoying. It to you? Right up, um, I can only speak from my own experience, Cameron. Are you claiming to speak for lots of people? I'm, I'm just, just speaking I'm, for myself. I'm not claiming to speak for lots of people. I'm just claiming that you are only talking... You're saying, oh, it was really annoying. Was it? Was it, uh, Dave? I, I think it became quite annoying, yeah. Was it? I've got no memory of it being everyone saying this in street corners. I've just no. Oh, what a surprise! The defence can't remember the evidence for a point for the prosecution. I'm <laughs> shocked. I'm just thinking. Well, you you live in the metropolitan Edinburgh. Uh, I I don't. So maybe you'll know better on this. I believe it was the Iran Contra affair where somebody set a record for saying, "I have no clear recollection of those events when they were lying to Congress." So you not remembering it isn't a surprise, Cameron. It's I'm fine. not saying I don't remember it, Dave. I'm just saying I never really experienced this myself. You obviously live in a higher density population than I did. So what, for so, all I know, you, what you're saying might be utterly true. I found that it was overused for a while. And You, and it's, as an individual, found. As, and again, I can only speak for myself. I would, I, I would I, ask the prosecution at this point, this anecdote, is in any way reflective of the quality of the episode we're discussing? Well, the, the fact that I think the catchphrase got overused... So we're, we're just discussing the quality of this episode, that's all. We're not allowed to say anything about its broader effect on society as a whole, well, or the yeah. way that it leaked out into things. The fact that Cameron raised the catchphrase is a great thing, and I'm saying in my experience it wasn't a great thing. I'm not allowed to do that. <laughs> Have you got a kangaroo tail in a pouch? Because that's what this is, it's a kangaroo court. I am shocked. <laughs> shocked, I tell you. Yeah, it, it, I found that this is what people remember this episode for, is that catchphrase. Katrina asked what episode we're doing next, and I said, it's an empty child. And she went, which one's that? And I went, are you my mummy? She went, oh yeah, that one. So it's Funnily what enough, people so remember for. Funnily enough, so did Claire. Yeah. Exactly the same thing. But isn't that a testament to, I mean, you know, I'm assuming Katrina, Katrina isn't, uh, I'll get your wife's name right. <laughs> Katrina. I'll be one of us. <laughs> At least one of us can. Um, I'm assuming Katrina isn't like a massive Doctor Who fan. No. Yet she still knows this story from that one phrase 16 years later. Yes, because the phrase became so overused, as was my earlier point. It became that the phrase was bigger than the episode. I overtook it, and so if I asked her what happened in the story, she'd know uh, there was a little boy. He said, who are, are you my mummy? That was it. So yeah, it, it's uh, for me, it got overused and overpopularized, and it overtook the story in terms of what okay. this should be remembered for. So you're much more preferring, say, in Science and the Library, where it's who turned out the lights. I thought we were discussing this episode. I'm just giving a parallel example. See if you found that annoying as well. It, it didn't get as overused. <laughs> did that phrase overtake the episode. No, because it didn't get as overused as this did. Okay. If you okay. say people don't turn out the lights, what's that from? They won't know. If no, say, that's what I mean. My mum and I go, it's Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly. That episode well, will I, my argument would be that that is 
how successful that was to getting over that one phrase. But anyway, people will have to judge whether they found it annoying or not, I suppose, when they vote, won't they? It's true. Yes. All right, Dave, do you want to give us a little point for the prosecution then? You see, now I'm worried about giving points because I'm going to get pulled up on it by the, the, um, <laughs> the impartial judge. Not unless they're really good. There you go. Surprise me. Impress me. Now, I know this was made in 2005, but it seemed to be very late 90s. There was a lot of Union Jacks in it. and not I know it was Britain in the war, but there was a lot of revisionist history. There's a scene towards the end where Rose says, Don't worry, you'll win this war. And that was bollocks. There's a scene earlier where the doctor says, This one little island stood up and said no. That's bollocks. Because it wasn't Britain as a little island on its own. It was Britain and its massive empire that invaded and enslaved. And also the help of the Americans and the Russians. So when I was watching this and they were saying, Britain will win the war, that's not true. And it does a massive disservice to everyone else that was on our side. Such as, you know, the Indians, the Australians, the Canadians. If we were to replay this story now, and we were to have, say, Jodie Whittaker's Doctor, say something on the lines of that it's like could have gone yeah you'll win the war but it'll be all the other people that will help you along the way you're just a cr- crappy island somewhere stuck in the middle of fuck all nowhere and uh, you know without, <laughs> just like Jody's doctor yeah without 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 anyone else's help you'd have been bombed into absolute oblivion uh, so are you can you imagine the absolute accusations of wokeness that would be trampling the BBC the next day or if not the hour afterwards it's yeah it's there is a few oddly posturing moments in this that I would argue are there you probably wouldn't do that even now even it feels like a short time later you know 16 years but a lot has changed in that time uh, you maybe wouldn't go as heavy handed in with the rah rah no this wall the tiny little island whatever it's not brilliantly necessary towards the overall theme of the story I think or there are necessary. Or, well, I think there maybe are indeed better ways of it, effectively those two scenes I think if I remember rightly they're both to Nancy aren't yep. they yeah. yeah I think it's just to give her character some hope because I think she's lost a lot Obviously, as we find out later, she's, you know, lost a lost child. And that, well done, Dave. Uh, it's just, this is the, it's probably the Doctor and Rose's way of ensuring that, you know, and try to get across to her that life will carry on and there will be better days ahead for her on a personal level and the country on a national level. Yeah, I probably would concede that it it does come across as quite sort of chest-beating nationalistic jingoism. Uh, yeah. It's about as closest as, you know, Doctor Who goes Farage uh, that we can possibly get at the minute. And but, to an extent, you can understand that from Rose with her Union Jack t-shirt on, never been out of London, thinks that England's the centre of the universe. But yeah. for the Doctor to say stuff like that, it was quite jarring. Because he wouldn't be about this one little island stood up. Yeah, is it not like obviously? Well, I think you know, the Doctor would be acknowledging that Nazism was a, a, was an evil force, um, and he is always surprised at how 
humankind stand up. You know, the Doctor will have a belief that humankind will stand up eventually for good, and good yeah. will win out. And that's always been kind of his or her kind of modus operandi with these kind of things. Yeah. So I think it's just kind of that little speech about you know this plucky island, whatever it is he says, is just a kind of in towards that idea and displaying that idea of him. And again, it would probably go back to the fact that this is very early doors in some people's Doctor. I'm gonna say Doctor Who journey. That's horrible management speak. Doctor Who journey. But you know what I mean? You know, of their fandom. Yeah. Uh, that idea needs to be put across. I'm waffling now, but you know what I mean. It's fine. We like your waffling. It's educational and it's interesting. It's good. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, those scenes made me think that maybe I was closer to the real Britannia late nineties Britpop kind of era yeah, than the actual a decade later. There is. I, I think maybe if once again, if you were to do that now, you would maybe have a slight problem with Rose's choice of clothing in that we are maybe you know, the, the Union flag is now very much seen as a here's me talking about the Union flag as a Rangers fan yeah. uh, So please tell us more buck, about the Preacher's apron. Buckle up <laughs> Buckle up everyone. The Union flag um, at the moment, especially with Brexit in mind and with um, Britain's um, place on the world stage now as it stands in 2021 is probably seen in a very very different and I would argue probably more negative light than it would have been post 97 into 2000 where there was this kind of like cool Britannia uh, yeah, the, yeah exactly the sort of new labour cool Britannia you know British you know, welcoming you know, uh, you know, other countries, and that this is our style, this is our culture. It's a mixture of everything, and we're proud to show it off. Kind of idea, not to the detriment of others, because um, obviously you're not that far off from, you know, your, you know, 2005 would have been, you know, this, and then you've got seven. You know, London would have been awarded the Olympics this year for the 2012 yeah. games. Yeah. That's true, and yep. you know you can you can watch that opening ceremony and be proud to be you know British as a nation, but not be sort of like you know that to spill over into yeah fuck everyone else. I think. There's an argument you can be that. Sorry, Cameron, on you go. No, 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 carry on. I was often again. We kind of. I was just got to say, I, I think you're right. I mean, there's an argument to be made that that span of Jack was kind of seen as a symbol of confidence, and in this episode, that's maybe reflected that it's been a symbol of hope as well. That Rose is saying to Nancy, "Oh, it's all going to be okay. We'll be fine." And then, yeah, nowadays that's definitely we're on the flip side of that, aren't we? Yeah, it's definitely gone towards the sort of darker yeah, side of that. You don't really, yeah. Uh, I heard none of what you just said. No, no, no. You don't really. Yeah, that was what I got. So that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Did you hear anything of what I just said there? Two words. Excellent. Okay. Your your summing up is going to be amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, just do a thumbs up or a thumbs down at the camera. Yeah, just, just do the yeah. just do the Julius Caesar way. Uh, It'll be fine. Uh, that may be best. Uh, okay. All right. Right then. Next point for the defence, Cameron. 
Right, here we go. I don't believe it, but Richard Wilson is superb in this as the Dr. Constantine, even if his appearances are brief, because he brings a weight and experience to the role. It's probably one of the better Doctor Who guest appearances in modern Who. Probably depends how you define guest appearance, largely. Okay. If you mean guest appearance as in somebody who is already known as an actor and pops in for half an episode and disappears? Or do you mean somebody who you recognise? Well, someone who you would say, oh, I wouldn't expect them to do Doctor Who. <laughs> ah, somebody slumming it, you mean? I guess so. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they would be the killer if this was a Columbo episode. Cause you, well, yeah, exactly. But, you know, you look at it and kind of go, hmm. I'm not, uh, you know, sort of saying, you know, like a piece of stunt casting like Maisie Williams. Not that. But just, you know, your, your classic actor who is suddenly pops up in Doctor Who and you're like, oh, man, that's pretty cool. And certainly not James fucking Corden. I don't think there's many of them in series one. Is there Simon Pegg's probably the only Simon other... Pegg would be another one, yeah. I'm struggling with the He'd done like he done like what well, he'd done Shaun of the Dead and things like that before this before yeah, Doctor Who. Yeah, yeah. He would have done. Ah. Yeah, he would have done. So he was quite a big name at the time. Still is. What else would there be? I suppose Simon Callow yeah. was supposed to be count. Yeah, I was going to say Simon Callow would be in you know for for playing Charles Dickens in Unquiet Dead. That'd be another one. You know, you wouldn't necessarily expect him to be you know, classically trained in the English actor. Yeah. To be yeah, in season know, one, around probably, first season they probably struggled to get people because oh, yeah. it's so people wouldn't want their name attached to it if it failed. Okay. Absolutely bombed, yeah. Yeah, well, I wonder if it's even just a stigma of what happened to Doctor Who before it got taken off air previously. That it was maybe still seen as a bit of like a ropey sci fi show that nobody really wanted to be involved in towards the end, and maybe. That's how people, some people might have still viewed it. I mean, have struggled to get guest stars in. Well, there was, still would have been a sort of memory of it sort of tanking and, well, not even tanking, but just sort of slowly being killed off in the longest possible example of television euthanasia. Come on, it was harder the Dignitas Clinic, was it? No. <laughs> you know, I, I'm trying to think, you know, in comparison to who was in that maybe the last few seasons of Doctor Who with McCoy that was a guest star. Probably not that many. Well, you've got Ken Dodds. True, yeah, I forgot about Ken Don, uh, Delton Bannerman. Uh, he was otherwise engaged tax dodging at the time, I suppose. It's probably not that um, many, because JNT's whole thing was the stunt casting, and then Cartmel sort of took over after season 25, didn't he? So yeah, and they consciously faded that sort of stuff out. Because there was a conscious effort to try and bring it back from the precipice kind of thing, wasn't there? Yeah. Um, did we count Hill and Pace? Please never count Hill and Pace. <laughs> no. Just, no. Uh, but anyway, even regardless of all that, Richard Wilson in this, um, you know, I mean, he would have been known for One Foot in the Grave at this yeah. time. Obviously, that's what everyone would have, you know, considered him for. But this is, I would imagine, quite a rare straight role for him. And I think he does really, really well. I think it's brief. He's only really in two scenes. That's it. He's in the uh, half two or three. The doctor, yeah. And then he's in at the end where he's one of the zombified masses that gets turned back normal again to human to deliver the fantastic line going you know there is a war or is it possible you've miscounted but I mean he does deliver the line such as physical injury as plague really well <laughs> he, does, he does all his lines really well I've got in my notes that the scene where he's turning is really really confusing and weird 
Because Richard Wilson doing Are You My Mummy is just freaky. It's just freaky and wrong, isn't it? But then it's also annoying, according to your evidence beforehand. There. Well, yes, but when Richard Wilson does it, it's great. When every company's cousin's doing it on a street corner, it's quite annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the way he feels with people going, I don't believe it. <laughs> I don't believe yes. it. <laughs> well, there you go, and it's guilty, isn't Dougal, it? Dougal, Dougal, it'll be really funny. <laughs> but as um, much as he is a great guest actor, it's been four years since One Foot in the Grave by the time he did this. And the thing that he did before this was a film called King of Fridges, which followed on from the other film, Monkey Trousers. So I don't know if he was necessarily able to turn down roles. <laughs> if I said my two film names that sound like they've come out of Alan Partridge's dictaphone, it's those. <laughs> <laughs> those were next on the list just before he thrust the cheese into the commissioner's face. Picture this, King of Fridges. King of Fridges with Mr. Motivator. Richard Wilson and a Carrie's showroom. <laughs> like Watchdog, but of drama. <laughs> Can I hold my hand up and say I've never seen an episode of Alan Partridge? <gasps> Get out! Never have. Banished. You are now banished from this courtroom. How dare you? Never have. But I, I, I know the scene you're talking about where he comes up with, you know, the, you know, um, the cringy scene. Yeah, yeah, you need to all are. Is that where is that where orienteering with near palm death comes from? <laughs> I think the roundabout sort of way, yes. Right, that's uh, okay then. Do yourself a favour. I am Alan Partridge, series one and two. That's all you Because there's a wrestler called Zack Sabre Jr. who wrestles from New Japan and he's British and his uh, finishing move is called orienteering with near palm death. <laughs> so there's the brilliant, brilliant <laughs> moments you have on New Japan Pro Commentary. Where the Japanese guy has to go, oh, do, 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 orienteering with your palm death! And it's just amazing. <laughs> and I laugh every time. Um, so, yeah, sorry. They really That's are running out of names for wrestling moves, aren't they? <laughs> well, it's just what he decided to call. I think it's like a leg, like grapevine, he ends up, it, it ends up doing it. It's like orienteering with near palm death. That's Boy, I'm going to destroy you with monkey tennis. <laughs> yeah. They call me the King of Fridges. <laughs> I'm sure that nickname has been taken. Anyway. Hi, Richard this is Wilson. Richard He's Wilson. a great actor, but I don't know if he counts as a guest actor because he is such a jobbing actor. Okay, even if he doesn't count as a guest actor, he's still brilliant in this. But for season one, you've also got Zoe Wanamaker, who was a young British jobbing actor, but a recognisable, and I don't want to say face because you played Cassandra. Because she played her face, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but for British audiences, you could also say Camille Kaduri, as Rosie's mum was a great guest actor, because she would have been known on the screens. So they maybe didn't necessarily struggle to get... What was she in before? The only uh, things to mind with me is nuns on the run. Yeah, she she was a jobbing actress. She was in lots of stuff. I hear a keyboard there, like Dave's looking up IMDb. <laughs> She was in lots of stuff, Your Honour. Tap, 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 I am tap, not tap. merely filling until I find out that she was in King Ralph, for example. Oh, was she? Yes. Off the top of your head, you've come up with that. That's yes. It's powers of recall yeah. are amazing, aren't they? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just because my internet like works. The Dave has the gears turn around in his mind as he recalls all these things. That's, that's yeah, what it's, it's happening. It's incredible. It's incredible. I think I'm not reading here. She has also ex- appeared extensively on British television, such as okay. Rumpel of the Bailey, Bit of Fry and Laurie, Boone, Touch of Frost. So she would have been known to audiences. 
So I think as much as Richard Wilson is a well-known face, it's probably because he has a very recognisable face. And he is good in this. Mm. But I think if he had been, I think it would be a couple of years closer to One Foot in the Grave, he might have got more scenes. I think it was a small character that he got to play. I think it is a small character he gets to play, but it's effective. It's obviously he couldn't spend ages on a set. You know, he'd have been there, I would imagine, about two, a day, two maximum, something like that. Well, he's in the um, background of some scenes after he's transformed and he's like hunched over the desk, so that's probably yeah, double. Possibly it wouldn't even necessarily be him, yeah. <laughs> but um, uh, I just think it was a really nice, it was a nice addition to this. You could, you could say it could have been any old you know, actor that could have played a aging doctor, but, you know, for a, a recognisable face in this and legitimising sort of future guest appearance in Doctor Who as, you know, a show to be on. It does bring a fair bit of gravitas to it. Yeah, exactly. He brings a fair bit of weight to it, which is uh, really good. Really good. All right, and Dave, do you want to give us uh, another point for the prosecution then? Hang on a second, let's look one up online. Since apparently that's what I do with everything. <laughs> Them cogs are going again. If you listen closely, you can hear Dave's modem patching into the dial-up connection. You're very dear to you. I don't live in Dumfries. I've got a proper internet connection. I don't, don't live in Dumfries either, what are you trying to say? Alright. I, I don't think tonight of all nights is anybody should be playing internet one upmanship. Not on this Skype call anyway. No. Sorry, Dave. Go on. No, no, it's fine. I was enjoying the space to try and think of points to make. <laughs> now, we mentioned earlier that the Doctor doesn't help at the war effort, which apparently is fine. Even though he would have known that, you know, on this International Holocaust Remembrance Day, he would have known that was going on, did nothing about it, but that's fine. But he also does nothing to help these orphans who are running around in the streets stealing food. He doesn't say, uh, Richard Wilson, just so you know, there's loads of orphans here if you could try and do something to look after them. No. Maybe get them sent off to the countryside with the other kids. But he does nothing. He heals Nancy, heals her son, and then goes, Bye! Enjoy the rest of the blitz! (laughs) Nobody dies today, but you're shit out of luck tomorrow. And if... If you think about, for example, Capaldi's doctor in later stories manages to alter documents so that kids inherit a country house and looks after the orphan children. So the doctor can do that kind of thing. It's just that Eccleston decides not to. He'd much rather just let nature take its course in a Darwinian way. Are we not all messing with the fixed point in time idea that's going on with this and the fact well, that, that, that has that been introduced really? but even I'm just trying to like come up with stuff that you know would be a reason for you seem to be blaming the Doctor for not effectively solving the world's woes in one swoop no I'm I'm not saying he should make everyone's lives better I'm saying that he knows these orphans are having a steal to live and they live on the streets and fine, yeah, it's May 1941, so it's coming in the summertime, they'll be fine. I mean, you know, it's not raining, except for the bombs that it's raining. But we we also know from later episodes that the Doctor is willing to bend the rules, break the law, so that kids are looked after. And then this, he doesn't. He just leaves them to their fate, while he goes off for a dance with Rose. And or Jack. Would there not be an argument to be made that this is a Doctor very close to the aftermath of the Time War. And so therefore, perhaps, 
is a little bit self-absorbed with his own kind of outcomes to consider maybe the minutiae of everyone else's that he meets. Capaldi's Doctor, by that extension, is removed more from that situation and can maybe evaluate things on a wider scale, maybe. I've just been in a war I saw women and children die. No, I'm in this war. There's kids over there that need help. That has nothing to do with me. Well, I think he might get involved because it's close to the time war. I mean, we have shown already in this season that the Doctor's relatively callous towards monkeys as he thinks of humans. So the argument could be made that he thinks that people aren't worth saving most of the time because we're just monkeys. Mm -hmm. He's also shown that he's willing to do anything to try and help people. So I think it could have been shown that he tried to help the orphans rather than just leaving them to survive. Okay, so there would have been like one, like a scene or something like that for that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay, it's an interesting idea. A scene with Richard Wilson where he says, tell everyone you're a great doctor and you're such a great doctor and you want to help these orphans. Mm. Even if it's just one meal a day so they don't have to steal from people. Yeah. And I think think that would have humanised the doctor and I know he's not human. No, I know what you mean, but it would have, but I think it would have shown tendencies. That, it would have shown that he thinks of the people he's leaving behind when he jets off in the TARDIS, mm. which isn't really shown a lot. Because we're used to resets at the end of episodes of everything. So no matter what it is, there'll be something happening, and then, oh, that was close, but it's all sorted out now. And then you tune in next week, and it's all back to the start, and it's reset. And I think Doctor Who did that, especially in the first couple of seasons before they got the big overarching stories in it. Whereas I think it could have been shown that he actually cares about the people he leaves behind. Okay. And, and they could have called back as one of the descendants was Nancy's fucking great-great-granddaughter who was Rosie's best friend at school, which is the kind of shenanigans they pull out later. Yeah, aye, and kind of like, you know, small world kind of thing. Yeah, interesting concept. Thanks. No problem. <laughs> I'll throw you things occasionally, <laughs> Dave. Thanks. <laughs> Oh, right, Cameron, you want to give us another point for the defence, yeah? Kind of following on from what Dave says, there's a scene at the, scene at the dinner table where the doctor's there, um, taking more than one slice of beef, whatever it is. Um, ham. I think it's a gammon. It's ham, and it? Yeah, it looks like a gammon. I think it's, um, it's alluded that he does ask, why aren't they away in the country? Because they should have been, you know, sent there away from the city. And there's a brief mention of how, you know, it was just one of them not say like, oh, there was a fella there and, you know, and he kind of has this sort of sad look in his eyes and it's almost like they're kind of alluding to some sort of, you know... Um, Savile. St- yes, sound <laughs> like incident going on and that's why he came back kind of thing. Uh, but that, I would say, and a long time, uh, alongside wartime teenage pregnancy isn't really an immediate topic for once again BBC on a Saturday night just before the generation game or whatever the hell you know but it's a lot of it's handled with care here especially say with Nancy saying that her you know, the, the empty child is her um, little brother when it's actually her son it's fitting as part of the ending ending here and it's you know, are you my mummy is a question <coughs> that can answer, is what I'm trying to say in this whole garble. There's there's a serious topics that aren't hammered home here that are handled quite well and delicately and are necessary for the overall story. Yeah, the fact that Nancy was pregnant, would, she would have been pregnant in 1936 to 37 by my maths. Yeah, 41, four year old, yeah, probably. 
which would have been a very dark time to be a pregnant teenage girl in London. Exactly. So the fact that they kind of go over that, but they don't make too much of it, is quite a good. It's well done and nicely done. Mm-hmm. The I've got written in my notes that the black market side story seems a bit pointless. The one with the fat bloke. I, th- I think they would also get in trouble with that now because the entire family's fat, which I know is a storytelling device, but now that would be fat shaming. And Nancy actually says to the guy, people think your wife's messing around with a butcher, but it's not, it's you, isn't it? Now, is that implying the guy's in the black market, or is he a closeted homosexual? I think that's possibly a bit of a loose end for you to decide. <laughs> so to speak. I'll do some I investigation. <laughs> I think the suggestion is he's getting all this extra stuff from the butcher because they're very close. In a kind of legal gentleman special stuff kind of way. <laughs> yes. Maybe yeah. not in a Papa Lazarus way. Who knows? You're my mummy now. My mum, Dev. <laughs> I don't a yeah. slice of ham, Dev. <laughs> Dev. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, it's quite a dark episode. It's quite a dark story. Yeah, which is going to be for a the, Second World War story. You've got the teenage pregnancy, you've got the black market, you've got the orphans that are homeless. They don't mention the fact that the guy who's gay in the army would have to really, really, really hide it or he'd get drummed out of the army. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that is really dark, which is quite surprising for this early into the new season of New Who. You'd think it would be maybe too dark for that. But as, as dark as it is, well done and it's well handled. Yeah. I think they go about as far as they can considering the time slot. Yeah, the body horror in it is quite a lot as well. Yeah, well... I, alter and you actually see them change. I think, um, as I, I, I think I raised this last month when we drew this, was this not the one where they had to remove the sound effect of Dr. Constancy's skull snapping yes, from the DVD I, release yeah, and yeah. the iPlayer? Yeah, yeah, because apparently it was only ever in the original broadcast. Version. Which is a shame for whoever actually engineered that and recorded it and set it in. Yeah, apparently they were quite delighted that you know they managed to get this sort of like cracking bone sound effect on like you know a BBC television broadcast, and they were told effectively to remove it forthwith from every single future release of it. I don't really remember that standing out at the time, though. No, I don't remember it at all. The absence of it, yeah. Yeah, but when we were mid-twenties as we would have been when this came out, it probably wasn't that shocking to us. Probably not. Whereas if you're younger, that's probably the kind of thing that can give you nightmares. Somebody's skull cracking as the gas mask comes out of their mouth. Oh, completely. So yeah, they set a good tone for the darkness of it. Oh, okay then, Dave. Do you want to give us one last point for the prosecution to wrap things up then? Yeah, and I'm I'm going to go with a story point on this. Because I watched these two back-to-back today, just to keep them fresh in my head. There's the who's making the noise now trick that they just use far too many times by the end of it. It feels like anytime anyone's doing anything slightly unusual, it's going to end up being the little boy making the noise. Who's playing the music? It's the little boy. Who's typing the keys? It's the little boy. It just always comes out that that's what happens in every scene. There's going to be a way that this wee boy is going to turn up. And it just seems a bit overused. They could use it three, four times, I think. And it was too much, because by the end you're just like, okay, so the wee boy's going to turn up now. And it feels a bit like they had too much time and not enough story. 
because what happens is he turns up and they run away and then they have a wee chat and they run away again and then he turns up and they run away again and have another wee chat and there's there's not a lot of actual action there's a lot of chase scenes but there's not a lot of confrontation and explanation in the same scene because all they do is they run away and they have a wee think and a wee chat and then he turns up and they run away again I'm trying to think of the times when it's it's effective though Especially in the think, big I think they found it effective and that's why they kept doing it. Well, later on, I think it's the second part where um, the tape machine runs, runs out, doesn't it, in the hospital? That's, that's right, the yeah. first part, I think. Is it the first one? Uh, no, because it's just no, the, the, entire, the, the entire part. cliffhanger is that he sent him to his room. Yeah. And then that's and the, then the second part. Room. Yeah. Yeah. Eccleston um, is the bad daddy, is my note for that part. Yes, exactly, <laughs> yeah. But he's. Um, there's a lot done in this story via audio and you know the, the the empty child can control anything with the speaker so we can contact you that way so this I kind of like Omcom. yes this kind of eerie Doctor threat as that, new words as it feels like it again yeah this kind of eerie threat of that kind of style of you know sounds coming from everywhere there's the music as well that is obviously the underlining Doctor Dances needs the music in the background. So that's part of the sort of overriding motif throughout the entire story. For saying that it's kind of a case of it's overused, it didn't really come across to me in that sense. I don't personally think it was it got to the stage where I was like thinking that oh this again kind of idea. Because I think it was a good device to use to show that this being that you believe is has evil intent is close by without showing him you know walking anywhere or being in the background i mean it, it's a bit it's kind of similar to in a way in aliens where they've got the motion sensor it's just a simple little thing that just bleeps but the quicker that bleeps the closer you know that this the danger is going to be close by whereas that bleeps all the way in and there's nothing there man there's nothing there Things yeah. broken. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, um, game over, man. Well, fuck now. Yep. It, it, it's good to be, you know, it is a device that they use. It's used more than once, I'll grant you. But I think a, it's quite effective. It's a good way of showing the threat without showing the threat. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and it takes a long time till they show the threat as well. Because yeah. for the first part, all you're told is stay away for about a good half hour. Don't touch him, don't let him touch you. Why? Oh, I have to leave now. So there's no explanation, there's no show of why you're not allowed to let him touch you. It's just, don't let that touch you. Now run away for the good half hour. So you don't actually know what the threat is, except that it's a little boy. Yeah, I, when I was in Asda today trying to get something to drink alongside this, I couldn't see anything that matched that really go well with this episode. But I didn't think I should ask the, the staff in Asda, I want something to drink that goes well with an empty child. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Don't get barred for you, that. Well, I think questions will be asked here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, wise move, I think, in your part. Yeah. yeah, definitely. All right, and shall we begin wrapping it up then? Cammy, uh, do you want I to do, give I do have one more thing. Oh, of course you do. That I could chuck in there. If you want to present another point, then you're more than One more to... thing, I'll just do, we'll, we'll belt through it as quick as we can. It's like the what? twist in this. That the big bad ain't really bad at all, and it's just aliens doing human stuff wrong. It's refreshing not to have to defeat, and I've used that in inverted commas, anything at the end. 
Indeed, as the doctor himself says, everyone lives because Eric Sayward does nowhere near this one. <laughs> Which is, it's a nice thing to have. It's just, it's it's a refreshing change. It's like you spent two episodes thinking that this is some all evil being. And in reality, it's really just a kind of like medical misunderstanding. It's a broken upgrade. Yeah, exactly. It's just been, it's just not been beta tested. And it's enveloped in quite well, I think. And I mean, for all we're saying, this is a dark story. And it is. It's rare that Doctor Who would get this happy an ending, especially in a World War II setting. Well, you say it's a happy ending. He hasn't really saved many people. He has saved the entire world from the interference of the nanogenes. Yes. But he hasn't actually saved anyone. He's reset things to how they were before Jack got involved. Mm -hmm. But they're all still homeless, living on the streets in the middle of the war. Very little hope. I mean, Nancy's got some, but nobody's going to listen to her. She's a hysterical woman as the 1940s. (laughs) So it's not that happy an ending for the vast majority of the people in the story. The Doctor's now going to get probably interrogated by the government about what happened. That won't be good for him because of the stress he's already been through. All of the people in the hospital are now completely healthy, so all the men are probably going to have to join the military. It's the miracle of the NHS, Dave. <laughs> Early. I think you're out there by about eight years, but yeah. Early. Yeah. This is the reason we stand on our doorsteps and clap on a Thursday night. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of these stories are dark because, let's face it, the episodes before this or before that was about the end of the world. Literally, Rose watching the end of the world. So it, it's it's almost always dark stories. And as much as you say this is a happy ending, not really. Because, yeah, Nancy's decided she can say that that's her son and that's her boy. But she's still a single mom with a bastard child. Life's the same for Rose and the Doctor. Jack has lost his ship. He's lost anything he had apart from his coat. So it's a good it, coat, though. It's a good coat. Oh, it's a great coat. He's made a career out of wearing that coat. But yeah, I don't know about happy endings. You need to ask Jack about that. <laughs> oh, God. But yeah, it's it's almost a reset ending. Because everything that they've done has been to put things back to how they were. The only real change is that Nancy now accepts her son. And some random woman's got her comedy leg growing back. So yeah, I'll, I'll grant you in the defence that that one woman has had a happy ending. Yeah, she gets both legs. Yeah. She can start her career in athletics again. Yeah. Well, some kind of like Russian ice dancing. Wait. Up until the doctor stepped in, her tap dancing career was in ruins. And now look at her. Yes. Now look at her. You try to tell me that that's not a worthwhile thing for the doctor to do. Now the whole city's in ruins. <laughs> London, baby. London. <laughs> Right then, do you want to sum up your cases uh, and one last plea to the jury, Cam? Uh, yeah, I will do. Um, I can just. It always feels when I'm doing the summing up that I'm running through my points again, so that's what I'm going to do. It's uh, a strong performance by Eccleston. It's probably one of the best ones for him over these two episodes in the season he did. It's a script which can make one phrase um, that seems innocuous enough but quite scary and then condense that down to one word. It handles a lot of kind of weighty topics such as teenage pregnancy uh, uh, quite well uh, and with with grace. It's the introduction of Captain Jack, which I would still maintain is a loved character in Doctor Who fandom. 
good guest appearances. It's a nice twist that this isn't something that you know the, the evil in inverted commas in this story isn't something that has to be defeated in some blaze of glory at the end. It's simply something. It's a mystery that needs to be worked out and resolved uh, in quite a natural way, and it's well set up to do so. All right, and Dave, do you want to give your closing statements to the courtroom, please? Yeah, this is, as Cameron says, the introduction of Captain Jack, which led to Torchwood, and I'll just leave that there. <laughs> Captain Jack, just in this story, is a gross, dirty pervert, basically. That's his character. The only thing he does of any value is at the end when the doctors use psychology on him, and that's it. When you see the characters interacting with this, they're great. But if you can pick one person they have to drop and two they carry on you would never pick that they drop Eccleston and keep the other two that's just insanity but that's what they did they got lost Eccleston this is a this is a good story but as Cameron also says there's no real bad guy in this the threat is from a little boy that they keep running away from and then eventually it's a threat for about half an hour but then it's not a threat anymore because it's back to being a little boy there is good acting in this, I won't deny that. Richard Wilson is great in almost everything he does. I love to be kind of fridges. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, the little boy in this, the threat, he doesn't actually get a single line. All of those voice lines were recorded by someone else. So there's a little boy actor out there who was in one of the most catchphrase episodes of Doctor Who, but he never said the catchphrase. And for me, that's the biggest problem with this, is this became known for its catchphrase. Are You My Mummy was the... Benny of its series. All of you going, Benny! <laughs> on the internet, they would have been going, are you my mommy? If Twitter was a thing back then. That's what it all would have been. The internet would have been full of are you my mommy memes. And that's the problem with it. It became a meme. It was alright at the time, but then it became too much. And I think there's a lot of it in this which was alright at the time. It's not any good now, because it's a bit dodgy and a bit dangerous. Captain Jack with these comments about people, bit too far sometimes the Britain's great and Britain's going to win this war bit too far sometimes so yeah it's it's all right but I don't I think it is guilty of crimes against Doctor Who but now Lee's going to tell me why I'm wrong <laughs> all right then so we just crack on and go straight to the uh, verdict to the courtroom then we probably shall and I don't think there's anything much left else to do hear ye hear ye the court's in session. Now, here come the judge. Here come the judge. Okay, right then. I will start by picking up a few things that the prosecution have mentioned through the course of tonight's episode. Uh, I'm not buying the whole thing about the catchphrase. I'm sorry. I, I don't think it really became a meme. It's a memorable part of a very good episode of Doctor Who, and that's just one part of the whole that people have taken away from it. So, I've not going to let you have that one. The whole thing about the child not really being a threat, I mean, I can sort of see you what you're coming at. It's not we a are threat. told it's a threat, but the threat's never explained enough, I think. Uh, I don't but, like to interrupt the judge and he's summing up. <laughs> I think the threat's never explained enough to be enough of a threat. But does it need to be, really? I mean, if you're not outlining the threat straight away, straight off the bat, then there's still a bit of mystery there. You don't know what the child's capable of. You know it's got powers. It's capable of taking over all matters of items and objects. I mean, that's one thing it does do really well. The, the creepiest part in the episode, the episode that's full of suitably creepy, like, creepy atmosphere, is when they're in the child's room and the tape runs out 
and the doctor gets the line, ah, but the tape ran out 30 seconds ago. He's here. That's pretty effective. Other things, the supporting cast is really good. It's a very small supporting cast, but the people that are in it do really, really well. Richard Wilson's very good. Uh, the girl who plays Nancy is probably the strongest supporting member in this uh, production. The bad guy isn't a bad guy, and that's a nice twist on what we would come to expect from a Doctor Who episode. It's just an alien race of sorts, trying to do things right, but not getting it right. Captain Jack? Well, Jack's Jack in this, isn't he? I mean, the first instinct when he spots a girl in danger is to ogle her backside and then gets her in his bunk the minute she falls unconscious. It's just true to type. That's what Jack does. That's his character. I think if it had been somebody else playing the part of Captain Jack, then he probably wouldn't have been so accepted by Doctor Who fans. But I think John Barrowman's got enough charisma that he can sell the part of this guy's a bit of a wrong one, but you do like him. It's just, I'm really struggling to see any negatives in this episode at all. I mean, given the strength of the support and evidence we had from the listeners earlier on, I'd be a fool to say it was anything other than not guilty of crimes against Doctor Who. Well then, you sir are a fool. <laughs> I dare you, I could have you removed from court for that. That's the law is an ass. How dare you speak to the judge like this? Honestly, I, 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 I can't... I, I, <laughs> oh, that's alright then. I really can't see any sort of flaws in this story at all, if I'm being honest. I mean, most really strong episodes of Doctor Who, you can find one thing that maybe thinks you think, oh, okay, maybe it's not fantastic. It's very good, but it's really, you know... But this, I can't see any weak points. So I think it's a reason why it's so well thought of, and I'm, I'm going to have to say it's not guilty, I'm afraid. Basically, the decision stands coming suck it up <laughs> fine but except that's see, not true is it it's not true doesn't stand that's an no. advisory from the judge luster and bravado on behalf of the judge is not up to us as always it is down to you the listener so once this episode goes out we'll be putting a poll up on twitter for a few days uh, you get to decide whether the empty child in the doctor dances is guilty or not guilty of crimes against doctor who and we'll reveal the results in our next episode and talking of the next episode, it's time once again for the envelopes of justice. Finger in the box. Finger in the box. And the funny thing is, yeah, you've got your camera off. So how are we going to tell you when to stop? Because David Cummings, smart arse of the courtroom, I'm going to put my camera back on. I think you'll find that Cameron was actually about to make the same point. I was about to make the same point, yeah. We both the magic him. of technology, I am now coming in your face. You could see it. <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> so, Cameron, you won the last poll for uh, the Hungry Athens So, you get to decide whether you're going to defend or prosecute what comes out of the box tonight. So, what would you like? I feel I've done a lot of prosecution lately. I defended that. I'll go defend again. I am going to now start picturing the box. <laughs> At any point, Dave. Say stop. Okay, stop. Stop. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be a Tom Baker. What we draw? What we draw? Psychic Phillips has spoken. Yep. It's going to be a Tom. Well, one from the Stephen Moffat era of Doctor Who. Oh, here we go. It's so, going to be bloody yeah. theatre, isn't it? Going. Oh, I know. Yes, Dave. Theatre has a Russell T. Davis. Ah, oh, so it is, I. 
So, Cameron, do you want to defend what comes out the envelope? I'll defend whatever comes out of the envelope. We're going Rings to see of again. Here we go. At <laughs> <laughs> no, no. episode 43 of the Polis Box, you, Cameron Phillips, will be defending Cold War. Oh. <laughs> so we're doing Cold War. Uh, it's Matt Smith's uh, episode from Seven Series of Doctor Who with Jenna Coleman. Uh, we've got Ice Warriors. We've got a submarine. I've got a mammoth and ice, apparently. It doesn't feel like um, long since I've talked about this because I've done the on-the-time lash about Cold War. So. That would have been well over a year ago, though. St- it still feels pretty recent, considering well, taking into account this whole year we've just had. But Well, yeah. Anyway, yeah. Cold War, what are your feelings about defending that, camera? Uh Not seen it since it originally broadcast. Um, at the time, I remember quite liking it. Is it a Mark Gatiss one? It's a Mark Gatts episode, yeah. Oh, that's not bad. Let's see, Mark Gatts does a couple of good ones from memory. Yeah, I think I can hack that. Yeah, I think I'll go defend Cold War. That's not a that's not a big difficult assignment. Dave, any thoughts on your upcoming case? Yeah, Cameron can defend Cold War. It's not that big of an assignment. That's my thoughts on it. <laughs> Are you confident about getting a good prosecution uh, verdict out of this? I'm confident on getting several points for the prosecution. Whether there'll be any good or not, I don't know. I think, though, you've got the uh, slightly better task than you had this time round because it's not a universally loved story as Empty Child Doctor Dances was. Yeah, it's yeah, not as kind of massively popular. Yeah, it's not as like you know, you, 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 general fandom would not say, "Oh, yeah, I remember Cold War." Oh. You know. We're kind of back to baby where we're snake dance. It's one of those ones that kind of sits in the middle. Nobody's really got any strong feelings the other way, as far as we're aware. So, no, that could be another interesting one. Yeah, we could get some mileage out of that. And we will. Well, a couple yeah. hours worth. <laughs> All going well, you know. Three points yeah. one side, three points another. Yeah. Unless you Skype's working properly as well. Anyway, yeah. that's what we're going to be doing in episode 43 of the Polis Box. We will be covering Cold War, as we said, for episode 42. We're putting a poll up on Twitter for the Empty Child and the Doctor Dances. You get the final say over whether it's guilty or not guilty of crimes against Doctor Who. And we'll deal with all that happens when we come back in our next episode. In the meantime, though, this has been episode 42 of the Polis Box. I've been Lee. I've been Dave. And I've been Cameron. And we'll see you next time. Good night. Yeah. Cha-cha! Gangster finish. Yeah! I'll wait for the clacking fingers as well. Like Ali G style in the house. Yeah, boy!